start with their motivation. So His Holiness Dalai Lama uh, frequently talks about survival of the most cooperative, not survival of the fittest, but survival of the most cooperative. And when you think about it, the spiritual path is in one way going against the grain and not cooperating with some worldly standards such as you know get as much money as you can get no matter how you get it but on the other way really especially practicing the bodhisattva path but also the Shravaka and Solitary Realizer Path, it's based on cooperation. Cooperation is really key for the existence of the Sangha, for the existence of the Dharma, for our own spiritual practice and our own spiritual advancement. So cooperation means often giving up our own trip doesn't mean caving in to everything everybody else wants, but it means learning how to work together with others for a common goal, for something that is very good for everybody. And that can be difficult for us. Some of us are a little rebellious, We want to test the limits. So rather than cooperate, we assert something different and push and push and push to see whether we can get what it is we want or just to see if we can willfully bend what others are doing so that we have some power. So that kind of attitude doesn't work very well for trying to practice the bodhisattva path. So we need to to look closely at our motivations, at how we relate to other people, if we're cooperative or if we're competitive, if we share or if we tune certain people out. Because these uh, daily behaviors are, and daily attitudes are very indicative of the degree to which we've been able to integrate the Dharma into our lives so that it makes a difference. So when we have a sincere spiritual aspiration, then we really do our best to integrate the Dharma advice into our lives and learn how to cooperate. And that makes the development of compassion for others much easier because if we have an attitude that wants to work together with others, then it's easier to have compassion for them because we get along with them.
if we set ourselves up in adversity with others, then anger easily arises, compassion becomes difficult. So let's keep our mind focused on the long-term benefit for ourselves and for others, for full awakening. And although our mind is focused on this long-term benefit, we practice day-to-day with even the small situations that come our way. And so... Listening to teachings tonight in one way is a small situation. It's only one night. But let's make it really meaningful through having a compassionate motivation. So it's interesting, isn't it, how we have these long-term magnificent magnificent, wonderful aspirations and goals. But the way to get there is step by step in a daily life situation how we relate to the people in front of our nose. Yeah? Because keeping compassion, like we keep saying, for all the sentient beings that are out there that we don't have to see, it's very difficult, but for the person who bugs us, it's really hard. And that person is always someone right in front of our nose, isn't it? So this whole thing about cooperation, I think, is, is quite important. For a while I studied mediation, and, uh, you know, they really talked a lot about cooperation rather than compromise even. Sometimes we think compromise is the best way, but often compromise is really short-sighted because if we look at a situation and see what everybody needs, there may be a way for everybody to get what they need in this situation if we learn to cooperate. So they give the example. Yeah, This is, you know, Daily life, small thing example. Two people are quarreling over who gets a bag of oranges. I want it. No, I want it. I want it. I want it. Okay. So they may wind up, you know, either throwing the oranges at each other, in which case nobody gets them, or they may decide to split the bag of oranges, in which case nobody's really satisfied. Or they might sit down and talk about why do you want the oranges and why do you want the oranges? And this one wants the oranges to make orange juice and this one wants the orange peel to put it in cakes and jams and sauces. So actually, it's possible for both of them to get their needs met because they can take one orange and one takes the juice and one takes the peel. But if they don't talk to each other and communicate, then that opportunity for cooperation is gone. I once worked with someone um, some years ago 
started off fantastic, you know, really common vision, really agreed with a lot of things. And then as time went on, uh, and I got to know this person better, I realized that his way of developing who he was and what he was going to be in the world always needs needed somebody or something to push against. Yeah. In other words, the way his mind worked, it couldn't be like, oh, this is something really good. I want to do that. It was always, I don't like what these people are doing, so I'm going to do that. Then I don't like what those people are doing, so I'm going to do this. So it it became extremely difficult <laughs> to work with this person. Yeah, because that's how he kind of figured out who he was or what he wanted to do. It was always pushing against somebody else. Yeah. So um, we stopped working together. <laughs> yeah. But we can see, you know, some people have that kind of character for whatever reason it is. And uh, they want to push, you know, and kind of... And you can see it in little kids. If Venerable Sumpton were here, she'd know exactly what I was talking about. Yeah? Because uh, you see te- people who are teachers, you, you see it. Of, um, you know, some kids just... Whatever the teacher says, they want to do the opposite. Whatever the parents say, they want to do the opposite. Yeah. Some of us may have even been that way. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah? What is it they call reverse psychology? Yeah? Um, But it's really true, you know, with some kids. That's how how they... figure out what they want to do, whatever the authority, parents, teachers, older siblings, whatever it is, says, then they want to do the opposite. Not because they've evaluated the good qualities of doing the opposite, but simply because it's the opposite. (laughs) And they want to push and see how far I can push it before somebody says no. You know? What can I do in the classroom? How much havoc can I create before the teacher sends me to the principal? Yeah. So, you know, some kids, I mean, that's how they develop. And then, of course, they become in adults uh, like that, too. So cooperation kind of eludes them. And somehow they thrive on conflict. You know, this person that I was working with, he he didn't mind, he talked a lot about peace. You know, we had these great conversations about peace. But he really enjoyed conflict. <laughs> yeah, quite interesting. So anyway, when we're thinking of, uh, you know, the bodhisattva path, that that kind of mind that always wants to push against something, either to see how far we can go and how much we can get away with, or uh, just 
pushing against so that we can assert our individuality or independence or whatever it is, that kind of mind, you can see, creates a lot of obstacles for itself. So, again, it doesn't mean that bodhisattvas are like, oh, whatever you want, I'm going to do it for you. No, because bodhisattvas have compassion and they have to, you know, they see what's beneficial and they have to say no when no is appropriate. Yeah, but in general, the attitude is is one of cooperation and trying to make things work. Yeah, I mean, could you could you imagine uh, getting reborn in Amitabha's pure land, and uh, you know somebody says, uh, "There's your lotus," and I don't think it's really like that, but let's say, there, <laughs> you know, there's your lotus. Why are you giving me that lotus? You know, I don't like the position of that lotus. I am somebody superior. I want my lotus higher up. You know, and Amitabha says, uh, "That's your lotus." And who are you to tell me what to do? <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> okay, interesting. You know. If you think of an assembly of bodhisattvas, how they would relate to each other, or an assembly of Buddhas and how they relate to each other, and then think, you know, if I want to be like them, then I want to try to relate to other people in that same way. Although they always tell the story of a whole gathering of Buddhas, and one of them, you know, apparently they were assigning. I, I can't remember the story very well. If one of you remembers it better than I do, please intercede. But they were figuring out which Buddhas were going to go to which worlds to be the founding Buddha, you know, the Dharma wheel-turning Buddha in that universe. And uh, so they were asking about our Saha world and who wanted to go to our world and all of the Buddhas looked down. You know, they they were busy or sleeping. Or, you know, they didn't want to answer the head Buddha who was asking who's going to go to the Saha world. You know, and then finally Shakyamuni Buddha, you know, was the brave one, and he said, "I'll go to that world." And all the other Buddhas went, "Oh, <laughs> thank God he volunteered." <laughs> Wow, Shakyamuni must be really brave if he's going to go into that world system and deal with those sentient beings because they are so hard-headed and difficult. Yeah. So all the other Buddhas praise Shakyamuni. Yeah. So we should appreciate Shakyamuni Buddha as well. Yeah. Good thing he didn't like take birth and then kind of uh, get enlightened and then start teaching and then after a few teachings going yeah <laughs> uh oh what did I get myself into <laughs> now I know why all those other Buddhas didn't volunteer to go to the Saha world you know how can I get out of this quick <laughs> so you really see his compassion okay Let's go back to the two truths. So last time we we talked about um, veiled truths. 
Now we're going to talk about uh, an issue that comes up regarding veiled truth. Um, and it's dealing with things being real or unreal. Okay. So, as we've seen, you know, in some of our discussions, the object of negation for the Svatantrikas and for the Prasangikas are, is different, that, that the Svatantrikas uh, negate inherent existence on the ultimate level, but assert it on the conventional level, whereas the Prasangikas negate it across the board. Okay, so the the Svatantrikas do that because they say there must be something in that object that makes it what it is, otherwise anything could be anything. So on the conventional level, there must be something you can find. There must be something real about that object. Okay, and so they divide they divide uh, veiled truths into real and unreal. Okay, and so uh, according to them, a pot exists inherently on the conventional level, and an inherently existent pot appearing to a non-defective visual consciousness is a real conventional truth, a real veiled truth. So this cup, you know, if you have uh, a non-defective eye uh, organ and visual consciousness, you see the cup and you're seeing your, your apprehension of that, this cup as truly existent is correct and the cup that you apprehend is a real cup. It exists the way it appears to you, okay? But, you know, a, um, a face in a mirror, they would say, is not real because on a conventional level, you know, if you have any smarts after you've stopped being a cat or a baby, you know that it's not a real face in the mirror, Okay? So the face in the mirror is, is unreal, but the cup is real. Okay? And so they divide this real and unreal in terms that can be discerned, what's real and unreal, can be discerned by a conventional reliable cognizer, yeah, like we have. I was actually thinking about this after my eye surgery and thinking, now before... Uh, like right now, okay, one eye still isn't perfect, but it's better. This eye is still not seeing things correctly. So does that mean I have a totally unreliable cognizers? cognizer? Does that mean all my visual perceptions are wrong, totally erroneous? Yeah. And what I was, I was walking around thinking about that, and I was thinking... If you ask me, okay, something like, is that a Buddhist statue? Even with my present eyes, I can say, yes, that's a Buddhist statue. And my visual consciousness is reliable with respect to the Buddhist statue. If you ask me, what 
color the Buddha statue is or what hue it is. Yeah? This eye, maybe can get it better now. This eye, it's, the cataract makes it a duller color. So with respect to the cataract, with respect to the color, due to the defection, defective thing of the cataract, maybe my, conscious, my visual consciousness is not a reliable cognizer, and it's erroneous. Yeah. So I was thinking you could be have a reliable cognizer with respect to one aspect of an object, but not with, with respect to every aspect of the object. Yeah. Anyway, that was my little detour. To go back to real and unreal, okay? But it's, it's interesting, you know, to, to kind of... Uh, See that when you take off your glasses, yeah, do you have a non defective sense power? Yeah, well, maybe you can you still tell where a building is, <laughs> but maybe if somebody was going to ask you what's the sign on the building, you couldn't read it. Okay, so you know, some things. The, the eye consciousness, may, some qualities of an object it may be valid towards, and others, you know, not reliable. Anyway, uh, for the prasangikas, yeah, they see the whole thing differently because to them, all veiled truths appear inherently existent even though they aren't. And so all veiled truths are false and unreal. And they say, oh, the Satrantrikas saying that some veiled truths are real, that's because they don't understand the proper object of negation, and they think that things are truly existent on the conventional level. Uh, inherently existent, sorry. Yeah. So they say they're inherently existent on the conventional level. Yeah. Whereas the prasangika say, no, across the board, everything we see is false. Yeah. Now sit with that a little while when you start to get conceited about something. Yeah? When we start to think that we're know-it-alls and we're better than other people and that we can, we have, you know, rights to assert, uh, to have our way. And then to realize, oh, everything that appears to my sense consciousnesses is mistaken. Everything that appears to my mental consciousness is mistaken. Yeah? I have reliable cognizers in terms of identifying the general object, but I don't have a reliable cognizer in terms of how that object appears to exist because I apprehend it in a totally incorrect way. It's a good humbling meditation, you know? It's rather shocking when you think about it. Okay, so Prasangika say you can't distinguish between real and unreal. But, you know, because everything's false. But they do say 
you can distinguish between real and unreal in relation to the world. Okay, so there's all these ways that they have of saying things. Yeah, so in relation to the world, yeah, this is a cup and the uh, face in a mirror is unreal in relationship to the world. Okay, but it's not, the cup is not real in general. It's false. Okay, so something being real or unreal in relation to the world depends on whether a conventional, reliable cognizer, which is a conventional consciousness with unimpaired senses that is not informed by uh, emptiness, doesn't have to realize emptiness, but just an ordinary, conventional, reliable cognizer, if it uh, can uh, contradict what, you know, you're seeing, yeah, or whether the an, a mind of ultimate analysis is necessary to prove something wrong. So in terms of, of the cup, a conventional, that reliable cognizer knows it's a cup, no problem. So it's, for the prasangikas, real with, you know, in relation to the world. Because only a mind analyzing emptiness could see the falsity of the cup. Okay? So that mind that analyzes emptiness, even when it comes out of meditation, it's informed by the understanding of emptiness so that it knows whatever it sees with its senses is false and like an illusion. So we talked about this before. Okay? And it it is in terms of uh, it doesn't have to be a direct perceiver of emptiness. It can be a inferential realization of emptiness. That after that, you can see that things are false and like an illusion. Okay, so a reflection of a face in a mirror and an actual face are falsities in that they both appear truly existent to the minds apprehending them. Yeah. If you look at, you know, Sam and you look at, you know, a reflection of the face in the mirror, they both appear truly existent. They're both false in that way. Okay. Okay. Because with both of them, the object appears truly existent, uh, inherently existent, I'm sorry. Um and both of those consciousness, we, here we can use truly because we're talking just in terms of the prasangika, and for them the two mean the same thing. So both of these consciousnesses are mistaken in relation to their appearing objects in that both of their objects appear truly existent, although they are not. Nevertheless, a conventional reliable cognizer not informed by emptiness knows that the reflection of a face in the mirror is not real, but it does not know that the face of a person sitting in front of you is not truly existent. 
Okay, so the reflection of the face is unreal in in relationship to the world, and the face of the person in front of you is real in relationship to the world. Okay, so these this expression in relationship to the world is quite important. Okay, because things that are real for the world are not real. Okay. So real for the world indicates that something is free from those superficial causes of error, like a defect in one of your sense faculties, okay? Whereas real means existing the way it appears. So a flower is real for the world, but because it appears to exist inherently to its direct perceiver, it is a falsity and it is unreal, false, and mistaken. So, yeah. yeah. So in in this whole discussion of the two truths, how words are used in different contexts differs, and you have to watch very closely how a word is used. So here, the words we're investigating are real and unreal. Because they're used in one way, in terms of a, of a conventional or reliable cognizer, and another way, you know, when we're talking about how things actually exist. Or we could say they're used one way when you say real and unreal in relationship to the world, but another way when you're not using it that way. Uh, is there a definition for real uh, and then what is the relationship between real and existing? Okay. So real means, for the prasangika, that it exists the way it appears. Okay? So the it exists the way it appears to the primary consciousness that, that apprehends it. So the only thing that exists the way it appears to the primary consciousness apprehending it is emptiness. Everything else appears falsely. Okay? But things that are false can still exist. Yeah? When we're talking about uh, true and false, real and unreal in that way, uh, we're talking about how things are existing, how they appear to the, you know, like for the prasangikas, the cup is false because it appears truly existent, though it isn't. But the cup exists. But it doesn't exist the way it appears to us. Okay? So this is a very delicate boundary, yeah, because Tsongkhapa is very specific and we are negating true existence, inherent existence. But that doesn't mean we're negating all existence. Things still exist. How do they exist? Falsely. They exist in an unreal way. Yeah. So it's this way in which you can negate inherent existence but still establish conventional existence. Yeah, but that convent. Whenever we think of conventional existence, we think of true existence. Yeah, but it's not true. True existence does not exist at 
all, period. Conventional existence does exist. Okay. Our problem is we can't tell the difference in our experience and sometimes even in words. Yeah. And so that's why there's been so many debates throughout history about exactly, you know, what the Buddha's teaching on emptiness meant. Okay, so reflection, yeah, is false and unreal. The reflection of the face uh, is false and unreal for the world because ordinary people can perceive it as deceptive. Yeah, it's a conventional truth for them because it's a step or a veiled truth because it's established by a conventional reliable cognizer that sees falsities see that's what a conventional reliable cognizer cognizes is falsities only a mind of ultimate analysis you know directly cognizes what is true what is real? Okay, because emptiness is the actual way things exist. Okay, it sounds weird. But you just have to get used to the vocabulary and how it's being used. Okay, so we can say uh, something is a veiled truth because it's established by a conventional, reliable cognizer that sees falsities. However, that veiled truth is not true because it doesn't exist the way it appears. Okay? Yeah. So it's a veiled truth. And what establishes veiled truth? Conventional, reliable cognizers. Why are they called truths? Because they appear true to a mind of ignorance. Does ignorance establish the existence of these things? No, because ignorance is a totally erroneous mind. Okay? Now here's something where it gets really interesting. A conventional reliable cognizer is able to know that there's no primal substance, because remember the Samkhya asserts some kind of primal cosmic substance that everything is made out of. So a conventional reliable cognizer can ascertain that there's no such thing as a primal substance or a permanent creator or an unchanging soul. Yeah. Similarly, yeah, a self-sufficient, substantially existent person can be refuted by a conventional, reliable cognizer. You go, wait a minute. Don't you have to use an ultimate, you know, a mind analyzing the ultimate to see that there's no self-sufficient, substantially existent person? No. Yeah, because the mind analyzing the ultimate is searching only for inherent existence. Yeah. A conventional reliable cognizer can see all those other objects of negation, like a permanent, partless, independent person, self-sufficient, self-sufficient, substantially person, a, re- a, con- 
a reliable, um, conventional reliable cognizer can see all of those are don't exist. Okay, and all of those things are unreal, you know, in relationship to the world, and you know, but the conventional reliable cognizers that know that, let's say, a permanent powerless independent self uh, is unreal are special ones that are deliberately cultivated through reasoning, okay? Whereas in contrast, an inherently existent person cannot be discredited by a conventional reliable cognizer. It can only be refuted by ultimate analysis. So this is really emphasizing, you know, as we study this, it comes again and again, how much it's emphasizing you have to negate inherent existence. Anything short of negating inherent existence is not understanding the ultimate truth. You're, you may be on your way, and it may be a, a, a reliable cognizer, but it's not correctly understanding the ultimate truth which is the emptiness of inherent existence. Okay, so whatever appears... So remember before when we were saying real and unreal um, was determined in relationship to the world in terms of whether there was a, uh, a defective faculty or not? Okay, so if there's, uh, you know, your eye is faculty is defective, then what it perceives is going to be unreal in relationship to the world, okay? Then you may say, but what about uh, a self-sufficient, substantial existent person? How can you say that is, you know, how is that unreal to the world? Don't you need an ultimate cognizer to, you know to determine that that doesn't exist? How come you can use a conventional, reliable cognizer? And it's because when somebody grasps onto, you know, an inherent, um, a self-sufficient, substantially existing person or a soul of some kind of permanent soul, something like that, that mental consciousness is a defective faculty because it's under the influence of wrong views. Okay? So defective faculty for the senses, you know, it means that your your sense power doesn't work properly. But defective faculty for the mind means that you're under the influence of wrong views. Then the question says, but what about... If it's, uh, you know, it's not a, uh, just a, what about if it's an innate grasping at self-sufficient, substantially existent, not a acquired one? Yeah. Then don't you need ultimate analysis? Yeah. No, you still, it's a conventional, reliable cognizer. But then you say, but. The mind, if it's an innate thing, the mind isn't really under the influence of wrong views. Doesn't wrong, aren't wrong views things that 
are all acquired in that life when you learn them? So apparently not. Apparently wrong views, at least in some contexts, can be innate. Yeah. That's a relief. <laughs> yeah, I puzzled over that for a moment. Yeah, I, I talk, it's talked about in volume two. I can't re- remember it exactly, but if you look, look in volume two. This mind that realizes the lack of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is a yogic direct perceiver, right? No? Not for the prasangikas. I see, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a conventional, reliable cognizer for the prasangikas. For the sau tantrikas, it is. Would you please explain the difference between a self-sufficient, substantially existent person and an inherently existent person? Oh, that's always difficult. It seems like, okay, an inherently existent person is... uh, it doesn't identify as being one or the other of the aggregates. Yeah, but it seems to be hidden within the aggregates. So it's something that exists without depending on any other fac- any other factor. It's something that exists without being merely designated by mind. So it has some kind of independent existence like that. When we talk about self-sufficient, substantially existent person, there seems to be a couple of versions of it. One version is of a self that is different from the aggregates. Okay? So you have the body and mind, and then it's something different. But some people say, well... That sounds like a permanent, partless, independent one. Yeah. So then then others say, you know, a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is one that appears, they they give the example of, it it appears to be one of the aggregates uh, that rules over the rest of the aggregates. So that kind of person is kind of a controller. You know, I mean, we know this, the part of us that, go, that says, I want to control things. Yeah, I want to control my body. I want to control my mind. That is kind of the idea of the self-sufficient, substantial existent person. Yeah, it's like it kind of hides out with identifying with the mental consciousness. You know, like, I can will this. Like my mental consciousness can will this to happen. Yeah. But of course, it's total baloney. But when we grasp on to that feeling of, you know, I can will this. You know, like the part of us that says, you know, I could really develop samadhi if if I only really applied my mind to it. You know, it's like... I just, you know, I'm a little bit lazy, so I haven't applied my mind. But I'm sure tomorrow, if I really apply my mind, I could, you know, actualize serenity tomorrow. You know, it's that mind, yeah, that thinks, oh, yeah, I can control things. Okay. Okay, let's talk about ultimate truths. 
Chandrakirti explains the etymology of the Sanskrit term. So remember, this is just an etymology. Okay, so it's an object. The Sanskrit term is paramatha satya. So uh, artha, which is parama, parama artha. Artha means object. So because this is an object, and it's ultimate, parama, it is the ultimate object. Because it is a truth, meaning it exists the way it appears, to its primary consciousness, that the primary consciousness that apprehends it, it is an ultimate object truth. Okay? So an ultimate truth is an object, something found by a reliable cognizer. In this case, it's the wisdom uh, of meditative equipoise. Yeah? And it's an ultimate in that it's the deepest or actual mode of existence. And it's a truth because it's non-deceptive and because it exists the way it appears to its primary cognizer. Okay? So truth, yeah, the word true we find can mean different things in different situations. Okay? So truth in ultimate truth does not refer to true existence. Okay? Because we're saying an ultimate truth is empty of true existence. Okay? And that emptiness of true existence is a non-affirming negative that is the mere absence of true existence. Okay? So the way the word true is being used and the way the word conventional and ultimate get used in this whole topic, and the way real and unreal get used. It differs according to context here. Okay? So, um, yeah, emptiness is an existent. Yeah? It's an object of knowledge known by the reliable cognizer perceiving it. Okay? Now, somebody asked the question, because I said... Last week, when you see an object, when you see the cup, you know, and I was talking about the two truths, I was saying there's the uh, cup, which is a veiled truth, and there's the emptiness of the cup, which is a, an ultimate truth, and they both exist here. Okay. In other words, it's not that the cup is here and the emptiness of the cup exists in some ethereal universe far away. Okay. But our consciousnesses right now, even though the emptiness of the cup is right here, our conventional consciousnesses are unable to see the emptiness of the cup. Just because we can't see the emptiness of the cup doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Okay? It's because our mind has not been developed to the point where it can see things like emptiness. Okay? But the emptiness of the cup is inseparable from the cup. Yeah? But the emptiness of the cup is not some kind of, like, shadowy form 
that exists in the cup that we just really can't see. But if we had Superman's visit vision, we could see that shadowy thing that's the ultimate truth of the cup, the thing that really is the cup in the inside there. No, okay, the emptiness of the cup is not made out of form. It's not anything that is perceivable by our five sense consciousnesses. Yeah. So we always get stuck because we were so used to thinking that something only exists if my five sense consciousnesses can perceive it. Even though we know that dogs can hear sounds that we can't hear, cats can see things that we can't hear, we uh, see, we still think that if our sense faculties can't perceive it, it must be totally non-existent. We're kind of arrogant as human beings in that way. And so this is, is how, you know, why reasoning is so important. Because many things exist that our sense consciousnesses are unable to perceive. Yeah. And uh, many things exist that don't have form. Okay. So if you say compassion, yeah, can you see that with your eyes? No. Democracy. Can you see democracy with your eyes? Okay. There's many things that are just veiled truth even that we can't see with our sense consciousnesses that exist, let alone the ultimate nature that to perceive that we need a very special mental consciousness, not just the ordinary ones. Okay. Answer your question okay? Okay. So although we think of, sometimes we talk to, about emptiness as if it were one thing, you know, we, somebody realized emptiness. Actually, there's many emptinesses. So some of these words, like sometimes we use true cessation in, you know, to refer to all true cessations, and sometimes we use true cessation to refer to the, a certain true cessation. Same with emptiness. Sometimes we use it to indicate all emptinesses, sometimes a particular emptiness. Okay. Okay, but there's actually many emptinesses because each object ha is not is empty of inherent existence. So we can talk about, okay, okay, here's the cup, a veiled truth. Then there's the emptiness of inherent existence of the cup. Okay, and the emptiness of inherent existence of the table and the emptiness of inherent existence of the gong. But in relationship to the emptiness of inherent existence of the cup, there's also the emptiness of inherent existence of the top of the cup. And there's the emptiness of inherent existence of the side of the cup. And the emptiness of inherent existence of the bottom of the cup. And there's the emptiness of inherent existence of each molecule of the cup. So in one way, if you look at it, there's many emptinesses here. But how many emptinesses there are 
depends on how you describe this object and how you apprehend it. Yeah. Because you can ask, you know, is this one or more? Is it one, uh, single or plural? Yeah, one way it's single, it's one object. Another way it's plural, there's many objects. Okay, each object has its own emptiness of inherent existence. But all those emptinesses are the same nature when you perceive emptiness with a direct, uh, you know, uh, reliable cognizer, you can't differentiate them. So when you're perceiving emptiness directly, it's not like, okay, there's the emptiness of the cup and the emptiness of the table and the emptiness of the gong. And oh my God, there's so many emptinesses and I'm seeing all these emptinesses of things. And hold on, I thought they said that seeing emptiness cleared away all the confusion and I'm more than confused now. You know, there's so many things to see the emptiness of. Um, so talking about the emptiness of different objects like that is just something our conceptual mind does to differentiate different emptinesses. When emptiness is perceived, you know, directly, there's just emptiness. And you don't have to worry about, you know, well, which emptiness am I seeing here? You know, there's just emptiness, period. Okay, so relax. <laughs> okay, however, yeah, there's, there's various, the Buddha talked about emptiness in, in many different ways. So sometimes he talked about two emptinesses, you know, the emptiness of functioning things and the emptiness of non-functioning things, meaning permanent, you know, permanent objects. Or I should say the emptiness of functioning things and the emptiness of the non-functioning, because the non-functioning Phenomena are not things. Things is, is a word we use that means functioning phenomena. Okay, then sometimes the Buddha divided emptiness into four emptinesses, into 16 emptinesses, into 18 emptinesses. And they're all divided in dependence upon the objects that are empty. And you say, why did the Buddha talk about so many emptinesses if when you see emptiness directly, you just see emptiness, not all these different emptinesses? The reason he spoke about it, these different emptinesses, is, you know, the emptiness of the, you know, the functioning thing, the emptiness of the permanent thing, the emptiness of, you know, this and that and the other thing, is to emphasize that every single phenomenon is empty of inherent existence. Yeah, so he divided it into all these things to, to really get the point across to us. Everything is empty. Yeah, it's not just that some things are empty and other things are truly existent. So you also have the emptiness of emptiness. Because there was a big thing in Tibet prior to Tsongkhapa where some people said, uh, and actually it wasn't just in Tibet, this happened in, in China and other countries as well, where some people were saying emptiness is truly existent. And then other people say emptiness doesn't exist at all because they confused emptiness with total non-existence. 
you know, so there's tons of these kind of wrong views. Okay, so uh, so for these people who say that emptiness is uh, is not an object of knowledge, in other words, it's a non-existent, then if you believe that, then there's many you have many problems. Okay, you think you have problems now? Listen to these problems. Okay, if you assert that emptiness is not an object of knowledge. Okay, first of all, that means that the Buddha would have taught emptiness without knowing it. Okay, because the Buddha knows all phenomena, and if emptiness is not a phenomena, then the Buddha would not know it, which means he taught it without knowing it. Problem. Okay, second problem is practicing the method aspect of the path would be unnecessary because it would not aid us in realizing emptiness because emptiness is not an object of knowledge, so there's nothing to realize. (laughs) So you don't need to create merit to, you know, build up your potential to, to be able to realize emptiness. Okay, third problem is there would be no deeper mode of, of existence, so the appearance of veiled truth would be their ultimate mode of abiding. Okay, so if emptiness was not an object that could be perceived, then what we perceive with our senses would be the ultimate nature of objects. Okay, so that would mean that seeing the cup meant that you saw the ultimate truth and you already had a valid cognizer of the ultimate truth, you know, which is ab- absurd because then we would all be Aryas. Okay? And emptiness would not be an object analyzed by Aryas, so there would be no difference between the mode of appearance and mode of existence to both common beings and Aryas. In other words, Aryas would not have realized anything special because emptiness doesn't exist. Yeah. So then why try and be an Arya if you don't realize anything special and if you're, you know, what you're perceiving now is is the ultimate nature and how things really exist. So that's the problem that comes about if you say emptiness is totally non-existent. Okay. Now... If you go to the other extreme, because here we're talking about the two extremes, that was the extreme of nihilism regarding emptiness, saying emptiness doesn't isn't an object of knowledge. Now, if we go to the other extreme and say emptiness exists inherently, then you have a whole other bag of worms. Okay, so the reason this one, the the first one, that emptiness is not an object of knowledge, that comes about because you know, people think that if you don't see conventionalities uh, when you're analyzing the ultimate, you know, that nothing exists, including emptiness. So that's how that the, that nihilistic one came about. The misconception that emptiness exists con- inherently come about, comes about by mistakenly thinking that since emptiness is found by an Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise, it must exist inherently. Okay? So here, okay, and this is important because the Geshis will trick you on this one. There is a difference between not being found by 
the wisdom uh, analyzing emptiness and not being able to bear ultimate analysis. There's a difference between these two. Okay? Yeah. Not when we say the cup cannot bear ultimate analysis, it means that if we analyze in this basis of designation to find what really is the cup, the whole thing falls apart. It can't bear that analysis. We don't find any inherently existent cup. But what that wisdom does find is emptiness. Okay? So the cup cannot, that ultimate, the mind analyzing the ultimate, okay, you know, the objects of that, that wisdom cannot bear analysis in that they cannot be found under ultimate analysis. Okay. But not being found under anal- ultimate analysis doesn't mean that something is non-existent. Even though the cup is not found under ultimate analysis, the cup still exists. Even though emptiness is found by an Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise, it doesn't mean that emptiness is truly existent. Okay? If when you analyze the cup, you found the cup, then the cup would be truly existent. Okay? But what is found by that mind analyzing the ultimate is emptiness. Yeah. And the, the, the cup cannot bear that ultimate analysis, meaning you can't find a truly existent cup. Okay? So don't confuse not being found by an Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise with not being able to bear an ultimate analysis. Yeah, they, they mean two different things. So emptiness exists, but it does not exist inherently. And when you subject emptiness to ultimate analysis, emptiness itself can not bear ultimate analysis, but what is found by that ultimate analysis is the emptiness of emptiness. So conventional truth and ultimate truth, and this relates to your question, um, are known by different consciousnesses. Conventional truths such as persons, the environment, you know, everything we see around us, everything we, you know, I want this, I don't want that. All these things are conventional truths, and they're known by conventional reliable cognizers. Okay? Sentient beings, non-defective five-sense consciousnesses, and they're non-defective mental consciousnesses that cognize conventionalities. But these conventionalities are false, and they are unreal. But they may be real in relation to the world, even though they are unreal and false. Okay? 
ultimate truths, the emptiness of all these conventional things, uh, of all phenomena actually, are perceived primarily by an Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise on emptiness. That's the primary cognizer of emptiness. But that doesn't mean that ultimate truths are never cognized by ordinary beings. Okay, because ordinary beings, which means from path of preparation and below, everything under path of, of seeing, yeah, can they can cognize emptiness, they can find ap- emptiness, they can ascertain emptiness, and they can realize emptiness, but not directly and non-conceptually. Okay, so the direct non-conceptual Realization of emptiness is only for Aryas and above. Though ordinary beings, you have to be pretty. It's not just any ordinary being, you know? Okay? So such a realization may occur on the path of preparation and below. So sometimes uh, people may even have it before entering the path. They say the uh, sharp faculty disciples do. Okay, so by diligently meditating on the correct view, the third principal aspect of the path, then ordinary beings improve their understanding until they can gain inferential understanding of the of emptiness and then direct perce- perception of emptiness, at which point they become arias. Okay. Questions? Everybody's hand goes up. <laughs> so we talk about ultimate truth and conventional truths being different objects realized by different cognizers. Uh-huh. And what drives me crazy is then why do we say they are one nature and different isolates? Oh, that's the next section that I'm going to do next week. Okay, hold uh, our breath. Then. Okay, yes. <laughs> That's the very next section, the relationship of the two truths. Okay, so we're getting to it. Uh, Venerable, you said that um, there is a difference between not being found and not being able to bear ultimate analysis. Not being found by ultimate analysis. And, uh, no. There's a difference between being being found by ultimate analysis and not being able to bear ultimate analysis. So there's a difference between being found in ultimate analysis and not being able... Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, okay. Because emptiness is found by ultimate analysis, but it cannot bear ultimate analysis. Because it itself is empty, right? Also, another thing about this is just because the cup cannot bear ultimate analysis does not mean that the cup is non-existent. That's another mistake people make. They say, well, an ultimate, ultimate analysis is the ultimate way of knowing something and if it can't find the cup when you search for the cup then the cup must be totally non-existent so they made that mistake 
So that ultimate analysis cannot find an inherently existing cup. But just the conventional existence of the cup is not in the purview of ultimate analysis. Just as uh, color and shape is not in the purview of your auditory consciousness. Yeah. So the fact that an ultimate consciousness does not perceive the cup does not mean that the cup doesn't exist. You know, in the same way that my not being able to hear yellow doesn't mean that yellow doesn't exist. Uh, Jolene has a question. As uh-huh. said from the previous lessons, I am confused between the difference between the direct consciousness and concept consciousness, and also the difference between phenomenal self and concept self. No, I don't remember using the term phenomenal self and concept self. Yeah, yeah, do they mean self of, I don't know, maybe she's been reading something different? that uses those terms, those aren't terms I'm familiar with. Okay, so again, I don't, uh, we say direct perceiver and conceptual cognizer. Okay, so a direct perceiver perceives something with, uh, according to the Prasangikas here, um, well, it's different. For, one way of talking about direct perceivers is that they see things without the medium of a conceptual appearance. Okay, So conceptual appearance is the difference between uh, looking at the cup and then closing your eyes and remembering what the cup looks like. Looking at the cup is a direct, perce- a direct perceiving consciousness. Remembering the cup yeah, you're not directly seeing the cup anymore, but you're putting moments of the cup together to form a conceptual image or appearance, and that's uh, what your appearing object is. Yeah. So conceptual consciousnesses are very helpful in understanding abstract phenomena. Yeah, and in thinking about things, you know, all our thought consciousnesses are conceptual, but our sense consciousnesses are direct. When we want to realize emptiness, you know, first we have to gain a conceptual understanding of emptiness and then uh, eliminate that kind of obscuration of the conceptual appearance until we can see emptiness directly and non-conceptually. To realize the emptiness of emptiness, that does that require additional analysis um, in the, mm-hmm. when you're in the meditative equipoise? They say that uh, for somebody who's realizing emptiness conceptually with a, a correct inference, they may start out analyzing one object, let's say the I, the self, And if they realize the emptiness of the self, then simply by shifting their attention to another object, then they can immediately know the emptiness of that other object. They don't have to start the analytical process all over again. Okay. 
But in terms of direct perception of emptiness, when you perceive the emptiness of one object, it's the emptiness of all objects. Yeah. Yes, including emptiness. Do they see um, things like compassion, anger as uh, real or then considered not real? Uh, those are erroneous con- consciousnesses. Even comp- no, uh, like, so anger is erroneous and then compassion is real? Or not uh, real? N- no, anger is erroneous in the sense that it, it is mistaken with respect to its apprehended object. It's not perceiving its apprehended object correctly or its conceived object correctly. Yeah, so it's a wrong consciousness, you know, just as uh, seeing a, blue, a white snow mountain as blue or seeing a uh, scarecrow as a human being. Yeah, those are wrong consciousnesses in terms of our senses. When, when we're angry, we are not perceiving the situation correctly, even on a conventional level. And they would say compassion is real. When, they would say, you were, we, let's not confuse erroneous and correct with real and unreal. Okay? For the prasangikas, all conventional phenomena are unreal. Compassion, whatever, you, me, the, the recorder, everything is unreal because everything appears truly existent, although it isn't. But that's talking about how things, that's looking at how things appear, you know, do, th- do they appear as they actually exist? Yeah. Whereas we can also talk about erroneous and correct without thinking about the object's ultimate nature, just on their conventional nature. Okay? So, for example, anger would be unreal because it's a conventional truth, but it would also be a wrong consciousness because it doesn't apprehend its its object correctly, okay? So there's lots of terms here, and they mean different things. Yeah. Would it be real in relation to the world? Where anger is unreal in relation to the world? Um, if, okay, so real and unreal in relationship to the world depends on if uh, the average person can see it as real or unreal. Okay, so um, uh, the reflection in the mirror is unreal in relationship to the world. Your face is real in relationship to the world. Okay, now can uh, can regular people see that anger is unreal in relationship to the world? You know, that, um, um, you know... Most people usually think anger is pretty good. Yeah. And that, you know, when, when I'm angry, I'm perceiving things correctly. The relationship to that, um, because you're going to give this talk at Google, and I was looking up um, artificial intelligence and emotions. Uh-huh. And it said that robots have been trained to identify basic emotions and respond to them. 
So I wondered if that makes anger or compassion. I mean, anger, some of these basic emotions that you can track by face or uh -huh. eye dilation or whatever, real in relation to the world. If you can train a robot to, to identify... No, there's, they're still unreal. No, I know they're ultimately unreal, but no, in but relationship to the world? I would say, yeah, so, they're still unreal. Okay. unreal. You know, hopefully intelligent people can figure out the difference between a robot and a human being. Yeah. Either that or they're going to have to start issuing marriage licenses between robots and human beings. Yeah, because somebody's going to fall in love with a robot. Yeah. That, that would be really good, you know, especially if you program the robot so that, you know, when you're in a good mood, then they can detect that and respond accurately. And when you're in a bad mood, they can say nice, consoling things, and, you know? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I'm still kind of stuck on, um, if I look at that gong, my visual consciousness is, is a direct perceiver. Yeah. When does the appearance of true existence then arise? In, in your visual consciousness... The gong is appearing to your to your visual consciousness as, as truly existent, but is still considered to be a direct perceiver. Yes, because, and this is the the subtlety in Songhappa's view. You know, if you, I mean, it is seeing this object without the without a conceptual appearance. Right. Yeah, and we would say it's a correct con. Uh, it's a a conventional reliable cognizer because it can identify a gong as a gong. But it is mis a mistaken cognizer because it, it apprehends the gong as truly existent even though it isn't. Okay, because I every time I hear direct perceiver, I hear I think of the non-conceptual direct realization of empty. No, it's like non-conceptually. No. Okay. Well, no, a confusion. direct perceiver is non-conceptual. But your sense consciousnesses are direct perceivers. But not... And your sense consciousnesses, when you see yellow or blue, when right. you hear a sound, right. that is a direct perceiver. And on the conventional no level, level, if you identify, if you can under, you know, if you cognize the object correctly, it's, it's a reliable cognizer. That's talking on the conventional level. If we bring in what is the ultimate mode of existence, then the way that object appears to your sense consciousness is, is mistaken, but it's not, not erroneous. Okay? So a consciousness can be mistaken without being erroneous. And still be a direct perceiver on the conventional on the con level. Yeah. Uh huh. Now, of course, the Prasangikas and the Sao Tantrikas define direct perceivers differently. <laughs> yeah. That Jolene clarified. She said, Yes, self of phenomena. Is this like we imagine who we are out of ignorance? Um, the self of phenomena refers to. Uh, the inherent existence of other phenomena besides the person. 
So it could refer to the inherent existence of our body, the inherent existence of our mind. So the self of phenomena does not exist at all. The selflessness of phenomena exists. Okay, the selflessness of phenomena for the prasangikas is the emptiness of inherent existence of the phenomena. Okay, and there, when you divide it into self of of persons and self of phenomena, there phenomena refers to everything who's not a person. That's not a person. But in general, when we say the word, word phenomena, it includes persons, but not when you say self of phenomena or selflessness of phenomena. I'm not trying to repeat myself. I'm just very bit stunned about so like the mind that is cooperating is not real but is not erroneous yeah you know if you have a mind that's cooperating from the prasangika view it's not real because nothing on the conventional level is real but it could be a virtuous mind it still could be a reliable uh, object that's perceived by a reliable, a conventional reliable cognizer. Okay? So there's these different words. Don't confuse real and unreal with erroneous and correct. Yeah, they have different meanings. Okay, you confused enough? <laughs> Good. Geshe Sonarinchen would be so proud of me. <laughs> That's what he used to do to us. He got us so confused. <laughs> and then he would laugh and laugh. <laughs> and he always said, whenever we say, he'd say, You haven't understood the object of negation. That's what your problem is. It is true. I haven't understood the object of negation. 